Google has built a microservices architecture on top of the internal container management system known as Borg. This microservices architecture has existed for many years, and the services on this architecture communicate over an internal protocol known as Stubby. Borg and Stubby are tightly coupled to Google's infrastructure. It would not make sense for Google to open source Borg and Stubby, but Google has worked with the open source community to develop open source projects with the core functionality of Borg and Stubby. And these projects are known as Kubernetes and gRPC. Sandeep Dinesh works on the Google Cloud Platform as a developer advocate. Our conversation explores how a client application request from an app like Gmail would communicate with Google servers, where the request would be handled by a network of microservices that are running in containers. And we break down the taxonomy of what is in these services and what is in these containers. So we also talk about where the Google Cloud Platform is evolving and how it offers a competitive, differentiated model from Amazon Web Services. This is a really fascinating show about Google's infrastructure, how people can build, quote, microservices architectures, um, and many other things. Sandeep Dinesh is a developer advocate at Google. Sandeep, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. I want to talk about how to build microservices. And in order to do that, let's start with the application level itself. So let's take a prototypical app like Gmail. When I mm -hmm. open up Gmail in my browser, there is an application container spun up somewhere on a Google server, and a session opens up between my browser and the Gmail application on the Google container somewhere on Google's infrastructure somewhere. Mm -hmm. Give me an idea of what that container on the Google server consists of, and what is the type of communication that is taking place between my browser and that containerized application? Sure. So I'm not... 100% sure what's going on in Gmail specifically, but that's a pretty good example. It's a very complicated application that's doing a lot of things, right? So uh, when you're saying a container spins up somewhere in Google, it's very similar to the idea of App Engine, where a container spins up, handle your request, and then spins down. So that would be communicating over something like HTTP or HTTP2, uh, and it would be serving you whatever's in its cache, right? That's the first thing it tries to serve you because we want to have the fastest speed possible. Um, and then it's going to be making network request calls all the way back down the stack um, to various other services to get your mail, get your chat, things like that, and then propagate all that information forward to you as well. So explain what kinds of services that Gmail container might be communicating with, because sure. obviously not everything is taking place within that one container itself. Exactly. Yeah, so Gmail is a very interesting choice uh, or example to start with, because when you talk about mail, it's a very stateful application, right? If you're accessing your email on your phone and your laptop at the same time, you have to be able to see the same worldview um, and it won't make sense if you have one message on one device and not on the other. So consistency is pretty important there. Um, so at Google, we have a database called Spanner, uh, which is a globally consistent uh, SQL-like database. And this is one of those services, right? So Gmail 
would store all of its messages on this spanner database, and it wouldn't store it internally. So with a monolith, you would serve, store kind of everything in that one big stack. But with Gmail, any of these containers, right, they'd spin up. This, a different container could handle the request from your phone, and a different container could handle a request from your laptop. And so, but both of these talk to the same spanner service to give you the same consistent view of your inbox. And at the same time, they might do a REST request call uh, to the Hangout service to show the chat messages as well, right? So these are two very separate services that are owned by separate teams, but they're both propagated by the same front end. Uh, so it feels like one application, even though multiple teams might own each part. So is a server, or sorry, is a container spun up to service every session that I have? Or is are there containers that are handling multiple sessions and then when a, when a certain number of mm-hmm. sessions have been reached, uh, another container spins up to scale the overall service? Yep, uh, number two for sure. Uh, multiple containers, for I mean, one container per user would just be kind of overkill uh, because you kind of lose a lot of that shared resources, right, between the different, like one network connection on one of our servers cannot possibly be saturated by one user, (laughs) right? So it doesn't make sense to spin up a new instance or a new container every time someone connects. So we do have, if you look at something like App Engine, this is exactly how it works. Once it reaches a certain threshold where performance can no longer be met, right? So either milliseconds of response time or CPU time, whatever the... Uh, criteria is for that team, then they spin up a new one, and then uh, all the new users go to that new one. And then once the load goes down, you can just spin them back down. So that gives you kind of that horizontal scalability. When a container gets spun up on the Google architecture, it is running on Borg, which Mm -hmm. is the Google container system. And these containers can communicate with each other across a protocol called Stubby. Is that correct? That is 100% correct. So for listeners who are unfamiliar with these technologies, could you give a brief explanation of what Borg is and what Stubby is? So uh, people might remember way back, like 10 years ago, Google started contributing code to the Linux kernel that lets you run uh, isolated environments, right? So what we call containers today. So this is because Google has been running containers in production for the past 10 years. And when you're a company that has, you know, over like hundreds of thousands of servers and hundreds of thousands of processes running on these servers, managing that stack becomes extremely complicated, right? You can no longer manually log in to a rack to uh, configure something or deploy something. You have to treat it like a giant computer that you're programmatically interacting with. And this is kind of what Borg was designed to do. So it's a container orchestrator and scheduler that runs all the services at Google, right? So a team will write a container, and then Borg is what actually babysits it, what scales it, and what makes sure it's up and running in multiple clusters uh, around the world. And then, of course, you have all of these systems, right, all running in multiple clusters around the world. Uh, they're scaling up and down now communicating between those two, right? Something like Gmail needs to be able to communicate with Spanner to get the email, right? It has to be able to communicate with Hangouts to get the chat messages. And you need a very efficient protocol to communicate because you have all these containers spinning up and spinning down 
And if you start saturating your network stack with uh, RPC requests, like really fat RPC requests, then you're going to run out of networking very quickly, right? So that's why Stubby and protocol buffers were invented to have a very lean and mean uh, RPC framework so all these services can talk to each other in our clusters. Borg and Stubby themselves, they could not be open sourced because the technology of Borg and Stubby is tightly coupled with Google's internal architecture. But both Borg and Stubby now have open sourced versions of the technology. Kubernetes is a project that's very similar to Borg, and gRPC is, uh, I think, an even more recent project, and it's Mm -hmm. similar to Stubby. So let's first talk about Kubernetes. How do you describe Kubernetes? So yeah, I would definitely describe it as the third generation of cluster management at Google, right? So like you said, Borg has a lot of internal legacy uh, it would not make sense to open source it. We would have to strip out a bunch of things and people will be like so confused why we did X, Y, Z, right? And it would be impossible to contribute source code back upstream um, because it just wouldn't make sense to a lot of people. So Kubernetes was started as a completely from scratch re-implementation of a cluster management system, but leveraging all the things that Google has learned over the past 10 years of running production-level containerized systems, right? So you can think about it as our third-generation cluster manager that's 100% open source, and um, that's basically what Kubernetes is in a very high level, right? So it's a system that allows you to orchestrate your Docker or AppC containers on a cluster. We've done some shows about Kubernetes, but I... I think it's a really important project, and I want to rehash just even some of the things that I've touched on in, or the guests have touched on in, in previous episodes. So some important components of Kubernetes are the application itself running in a Docker container, and then the pod, which the container runs in, and then the replication controller. Explain these three units and how they interact, the application, the pod, and the replication controller. Sure. So I want to add one more uh, to that explanation, which is the service, which I think is a very critical piece. So, But I'm going to start all the way down uh, at that Docker container. So the container is this, what I like to call the subatomic particle of Kubernetes. So you can think about it as your application logic or your glue logic, whatever you have, the code that runs, right? That's your container. Now, the atomic particle, right, the atom of Kubernetes is definitely the pod. So a pod can be one or more containers that work together. So typically I see people deploy a container as a pod. But the reason why we have pods is sometimes you want multiple containers to live and die together, share the local namespace, things like that. So a good example is a uh, proxy that does some sort of... um, gateway logic or something like that, that has to live very close to your application code, right? So you want these to be scheduled together. You want localhost to be the same between the two. So now your application can just hit localhost and that proxy can do whatever it needs to talk to the rest of Kubernetes. And now you can use that proxy in all of your different pods with different uh, application containers. And now you don't have to rewrite your code or something like that. So a pod can be like the atomic particle of Kubernetes. 
So now you have this pod, you have to actually run it on your cluster, right? And so this is where replication controllers, or more recently in Kubernetes 1.2, uh, deployments come in. And a deployment is basically exactly like it sounds, right? It's a uh, way you run your code on your cluster. So you say, I want to run this version of this container, and uh, this is my pod, and I want 10 copies to run on my cluster. Now, your deployment will spin up something called a replica set, which is uh, very similar to a replication controller in Kubernetes 1.1. And this replica set will ensure that 10 copies of your code is running in the cluster somewhere at all times. So what this really gives you is even if a server goes down, even if a process crashes, the replica set will detect that and automatically spin up another copy somewhere else in your cluster. So you have all of these like 10 copies running. Uh, now you want to scale up. So what you can do with the deployment is simply scale up the deployment to 15. And you now do a deployment, the second deployment. And now it'll deploy to 15. And let's say now you want to update that deployment to the next version. So now you do the third deployment and you say, I want version two, right? So now you have three deployments, one at 10, one at 15, and then one at version two with 15. And the cool thing about a deployment is you can just go back. Let's say version two had a bug in it. You can easily deploy the second deployment again, just roll back to it and everything works as expected. You're not no longer panicking over, oh man, how do I roll back? What do I do? Um, what do I do I like roll back my Git? What do I like? None of that happens anymore. You kind of just roll back to version two of your deployment. And the deployment has a very, very rich history. So you can just go through and pick which one you want. Uh, and you have a very good log of what you did in your system. Do you also do canarying and A-B testing within the abstraction of a deployment? Exactly. So uh, one deployment wouldn't would be one. So a deployment would not have two versions running inside of it. But how you do something like a canary or an A/B test is you simply launch another deployment, right? So you have your pro, uh, let's say your prod deployment and your canary deployment, uh, and your prod deployment has fifteen copies and your canary has one, right? Uh, and then once the canary starts working, you then flip the prod deployment to that to that new version. And then you flip your canary to that uh, experimental version, right? So you'll roll both up uh, as you feel comfortable. So you would have multiple deployments for these multiple A-B tests. So when you said the term de service, did, did you mean yes. deployment? Is that the same as? I did not, right. Okay. So that's, the, that's the, uh, the last piece. And I think one of the most important pieces of Kubernetes. And it's really what lets microservices work uh, in your cluster. So we talked about canary and A-B testing and things like that. Well, you have all these deployments that are running pods somewhere in your cluster, right? Uh, 15, 10, 4, who knows how many. Uh, it makes no sense for the users of your service to memorize where these pods are running in the pod IP addresses. So services act as a stable IP address or stable endpoint that will route traffic to these variable pods, right? So you can have like a service for your database, a service for your front end, a service for, let's say, a machine learning uh, analyzer or something like that, right? And so with the Kubernetes system, these services are exposed over DNS and IP. So your, all your different microservices can find them and talk to them without worrying about how many copies or whatever is running under the covers. So it's something like a canary 
the same service would actually load balance traffic to your prod deployment and your canary deployment. And because you have one versus 15, you can see how much traffic is going to be split between the two, right? But your users only hit one service, which is pretty cool. So the abstraction of the service is basically a router. Yes. Okay, interesting. So at this point, is there any worth in differentiating between the the term microservice and the term service or, or, or I mean I guess the service in terms of the abstraction that is a router and maybe the microservice is just the whole topic that we're discussing or yeah I would say the service is more like a technical term where microservice is more of a philosophical term um yeah, it's just the word for the thing in the cluster is called a service, and it so happens that microservice also has service in the name, right? Uh, they both ser- interestingly similar, like a service enables you to have microservices more easily, but they're not dependent on each other in any shape or form. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think I think microservices is, is uh, one of these things that's, I don't know, it's kind of like DevOps where you know it when you see it rather than, uh, you know, fixating some definition on it. Um, I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you do you have a do you have a concise definition? I, I It's been a while since I asked somebody the question, like, what is microservices? But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a worthwhile question to occasionally ask. Yeah, one of my friends, uh, he loves to say the two pizzas rule that Jeff Bezos loves quoting, right? So. Uh. If your team can be fed with two pizzas, then it's a microservice. I, I like saying if your app does one thing and one thing well, then it's probably a microservice. If it does more than one thing, it's probably not, right? Um, but again, it's super complicated, uh, very personal subject, which is kind of weird, right? You never think computer science is a personal thing, but definitely is. Um I like this. If, if 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 someone can understand the code, like you hire someone and they understand it, what's going on uh, within a week, and they can rewrite it within two weeks, that's probably a microservice. Now, if it takes them like two years to like rearchitect this giant thing, um, that's probably not a microservice, right? That's probably something else. So, it's basically can you understand it and can a small team manage it? That <sighs> points you in the right direction. But I, again, don't think that's the definition. I, it's a very complicated uh, and touchy subject, right? I think it's also the answer to the question of how do we scale and mature our systems? So the discussion of a monolith versus microservices, uh, you know, I think it gets sometimes get the discussion gets framed as if there are many options for building a system but really it seems like the only modern option or the best modern option is uh certainly over indexed towards okay you start with a monolith you build an mvp because you've got a small team and everybody can understand the monolith and then over time if your if your product scales your team is going to scale and then you advance into quote-unquote microservices I would have to disagree with that. Um, really? Yeah. Because so I guess oh, okay. So I guess this is this is the I mean this is the Kubernetes story because you can get microservices from day one. Exactly. With something like Kubernetes, uh, it kind of abstracts all that complicated. Oh man, now I have to spin up four VMs, and each VM has a different like version of Node.js and Ruby and Java, and like I had to 
manage all this like op stuff. Screw it. I'm just going to write everything in Scala and like launch my monolith, right? That that well, you had to do that because it was just too much ops overhead to like try to do microservices from day one. But with something like Kubernetes or a higher level pass like days or whatever on top of it, you don't have to worry about that stuff anymore, right? So it gives you that operational freedom to do microservices from day one. Uh, and now, like now, it becomes more of a does it make sense for my team to do microservices or not? Not like I can't do microservices because it's too complicated, right? So now if it's like I'm doing this um, spam filter in Python and my front-end code in Ruby and a back-end thing in Go, go for it, right? In the past, you'd be like, okay, well, the best language for all three of those is Python. Uh, I'm going to force everything to be in Python. Now you don't have to do that anymore. That you don't. It's just so much easier to do microservices that it becomes an option, right? It's mm-hmm. on the table now. Fascinating. Okay, uh, so you know when I was talking to, uh, I think it was either Brendan Burns or Kelsey Hightower. I mm-hmm. did these uh, Kubernetes interviews recently, and you know it kind of got the impression that the that is an inevitability. What you are describing is an inevitability. We're going to get to the point to where it's easy to flip a switch and turnkey solution microservices day one, the Ruby on Rails of microservices. <sighs> But the impression I got talking to them is that it is still a little bit too hard. It is there's still no, you know, in Ruby on Rails, you know, it's just like Rails new. Mm-hmm. You know, you get everything, and you got a monolith, and you did it did it with one command. Yep. Are, are there still too many steps to to incentivize people to just do this from day one? <sighs> That's a really good a good question. Um... I would have to say it depends, which is the the worst answer in the world. (laughs) Um, But so someone who has a lot of Kubernetes experience, who's very DevOpsy, I think they could do it uh, from day one. But I would say the majority of developers don't fit into that category. You know, they're they're someone who knows their wheelhouse uh, really well. And, you know, they can spin up a Ruby on Rails app like that and get MVP out the door very quickly, right? Now, for someone like that, I feel like Kubernetes is still a little bit too low level, right? It gives you not enough scaffolding to uh, start, right? So Ruby is a great language. Rails is the scaffolding around it that lets you, you know, spin up those MVPs and spin up those uh, even production level applications very quickly. With something like Kubernetes, I think it's like it's like the Ruby, right? It's the programming language for your cluster. Now you need some sort of scaffolding around it. And if you look at the ecosystem today, you can see a ton of startups uh, building platforms on top of Kubernetes. And I think that is going to be the triggering point. Uh, one or two of these startups is going to hit critical success. And uh, that's going to be amazing, right? Um, that's what I see kind of happening is that platform on top of Kubernetes, those platform as a services that are still open source and run uh, the uh, open source stack all the way down, uh, that that's going to be what enables the majority of developers to start microservices from day one. You know, I also get the sense that there is a more abstract discussion here to be had about the types of companies that, that people are building these days. I think of Web 2.0 as being very uh, epitomized by the lean startup iterate to the local maxima to the local maxima to the next local maxima 
and this rapid uh, iteration as, a por- as opposed to some of the more ambitious things that are coming out these days where you say, okay, I'm going to you know, put my foot down. I'm going to do this thing that's really hard and it might take me a lot of time, but I am, I am taking the deterministic calculus-based approach and going for this big, bold goal, and I don't care how long it's going to take me. And I think of the latter approach, the more recent, recently popular approach to really, really hard problems that might take a, lo- a longer time, as more closely associated with like, okay, day one, we're going to build uh, on the thing that's going to give us the best long-term support. Um, but maybe that's a more abstract discussion. <laughs> so, okay, let's let's talk about things that are more uh, a little more focused. So, I watched this talk where you quoted Martin Fowler, and Martin Fowler said, "The biggest issue in changing a monolith into microservices lies in changing the communication pattern." And when we go from communicating within a single monolithic app to a network of services. There are communication changes that we need to make, and you already discussed this a bit with Stubby, and now I want to get into a discussion of gRPC. So when we're talking about communication within a network of services versus communication within a single monolithic app, what are the changes that we need to make? Right. So uh, just to give some more detail, right, so what happens when you move a monolith to a microservice is... What was once a function call, right, just a normal method that, you know, puts something on the stack, whatever, now becomes a network call. And a network call has a latency factor, a unreliability factor. Who knows? That service might be down, right? All this complication comes into play now once you're going over the network and talking to someone else's service, right? You don't own that. Your team does not own that other service. That's the whole point of microservices is that uh, independence. So now you have to think about all that stuff. And even before getting into like technology that helps with it, like gRPC, you have to start thinking at a different level, right? Um, There's a lot of stories even inside Google where it's like, uh, oh, that service will never go down. So we don't have to error check. We don't have to like provide a sane default. And then that service goes down, right? And then it's like <laughs> everything breaks and teams scramble. And it's like, wait, what? That like core service can go down? And so like at Google, we have some things called like uh, basically we simulate uh, disasters, right? And I think a lot of people should do this uh, in their own companies as well, like the chaos monkey. Like what happens if a data center just gets hit with a nuclear bomb, right? And like this service does not even exist anymore and that team is now dead okay, what the heck do you do, right? Does your service still run? Maybe, maybe not, right? So uh, that at that like very high level of abstraction, you had to change your thinking pattern into like not trusting anybody, right? I mean, it's a really weird thing to say, but like you have to, you can't trust the network. Um, so that, that really changes your application uh, development mentality. And then the other thing, of course, is performance. Uh, so you can't do uh, t- doing like a million network calls, opening and closing TCP sockets over and over again. Bad idea, right? And that's where technology like gRPC can totally help. Uh, so gRPC, for the listeners who don't know what that is, is an open source version of Stubby. And it's actually very, very, very close to what we use internally at Google. So Kubernetes was a complete re-implementation 
but gRPC is actually pretty pretty close to what we use um, internally. So what it lets you do is optimize that network calling piece, right? So instead of opening and closing multiple TCPs, uh, TCP stuff open and closing TCP sockets, you can just have one persistent stock socket and do streaming over that one socket. Things like that um, that really helps you build those microservices. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about that in a little more detail. How does a remote procedure call like gRPC, how does that compare to communication over REST? Mm-hmm. So if you look back into like what REST was invented for, right? Representational state transfer, right? It was meant for stateless services, which is very close to what a microservice is, over the web, right? So uh, when I think about REST, I was doing REST with PHP way back in like 2008, um, but like, was that jQuery and things like that? And it, it's really easy to build AJAX uh, systems, right, with REST APIs. And the cool thing about REST APIs is they're self-describing, right, get, put, post. It kind of makes sense. You can just read the HTML, oh, not, sorry, you can read the path and understand what's going on, right? And I think that's why REST just took off compared to XML or whatever, where let's not even talk about XML. Let's just not talk about that. <laughs> uh, because it's just complicated, right? JSON and REST was so easy that like everyone started using it. And the problem with it is it wasn't ever built for high performance, right? It was built for ease of use, at least in my opinion. Now, JSON parsers and things like that have gotten ridiculously fast. But if you're now doing what was once a function call, right, over the network, you might be doing thousands of these per second, right? And now all of a sudden, JSON and REST don't scale uh, to that level of performance that you need. So what do you do? Um, now, you go, now you go back in time to the 70s and you take a concept called remote procedure calls and you bring them back into 2016. That's what you do, right? Um, so remote procedure calls were this thing when you had like client server way back when where the client was this thin client who couldn't run any code on itself, right? So it would do a call to a giant mainframe that would process the data and then send the result back. And that's what really what our RPC was back in the day. Now it's a way for our microservices to all talk to each other. So you have uh, these microservices talking to each other over JSON REST. It might make more sense to do it over a RPC framework like gRPC. gRPC uses protocol buffers. So these are a language-neutral way of serializing your data. So think of JSON as also kind of language-neutral at this point. It also kind of serializes my data. Uh, mm-hmm. So for people who have never heard of protocol buffers, uh, or even if you've heard of a protocol buffer but you don't really understand what it is, can you talk about protocol buffers in more detail? Explain sure. what it is, how, why it's more efficient than, than JSON. Sure. So like you said, JSON and protocol buffers are two different serialization formats, right? And all serialization does is it takes data and puts into a format that can go over the wire and then turn back into that data, right? Ones and zeros. Ones and zeros. So uh, with protocol buffers, and so just to be clear, gRPC is 
actually um, serialization format neutral as well. So you can uh, put in JSON through a gRPC uh, call or thrift or flat buffers or whatever you want. Now, you have to write the code to do that. Uh, right now, gRPC only supports protocol buffers out of the box, right? So what does protocol buffers give you? Well, it gives you a lot better uh, compaction compared to JSON and a lot better uh, serialization and deserialization performance. And the reason why is it's binary, right? Uh, and it's doing this all, and it's pre, so, okay, so let me let me rewind a second, right? So with JSON, you it's basically a JavaScript object notation, right? So curly braces, uh, the little tag and the, the, the object, right? And it makes it super easy to really describe any sort of data structure. Now with protocol buffers, you have to write something called a dot proto file. And this dot proto file describes what kind of data you're going to send, describes how you're going to serialize it. And because you have this dot proto file, we're able to make uh, serialization and deserialization much faster because we know exactly what you're going to send over the wire. And because of you know this as well, you're able to compress everything into a very tight binary format, again, to send over the wire and then deserialize very quickly. Um, right, because the no, the more data, that the more that we know about the structure of our data, the more compactly we can serialize it because the more we can understand the patterns of that data. Exactly, exactly. And I think um, CoreOS did a really great blog post where they, compa- they basically compared the performance of uh, JSON REST over HTTP 1.0, or sorry, 1.1 versus gRPC over HTTP 2. And it was mind-blowing just how much faster uh, gRPC was at sending these things back and forth. Uh, and the cool thing about something like gRPC is because, again, you've described that data in the .proto file, you can actually use something like a um, reverse proxy to actually expose a JSON REST gateway and a gRPC gateway on the same port. And again, CoreOS has a great uh, blog post about how you do this as well. gRPC takes advantage of some of the HTTP2 features, as I understand. That's right. Can you talk about how HTTP2 contrasts with HTTP1? What are the things that uh, gRPC is taking advantage of? Sure. Um, So for people who don't know, HTTP2 is the, the new HTTP protocol. Well, I say new, I don't know. It's been around for years and for now, right? So it's what Chrome and Firefox and Edge and all these browsers use to talk to websites. Um, and Google, Facebook, Twitter, they all support HTTP2. Uh, Nginx supports HTTP2. So what the heck is it, right? <laughs> HTTP 1.1 and 1.0 were really designed for the web of yesterday, right? Um, when you make a request to get download an image, that's all you can do. And, and in tr- vanilla HTTP, you can only do one request at a time, right? So when you have a modern website, which has thousands and thousands of things, you can see how slow that would be. Now, with modern browsers, they do something called pipelining, where they can open like six connections at once. Ooh, right? A whole six connections. Well, with a thousand stuff on your page, that's still going to be really slow. With something like HTTP2, 
you can do asynchronous download of the whole page. You can do things like bi-directional streaming. And uh, again, with HTTP 1, it's request response. So you have to resort to things like WebSockets or uh, long polling, things like that to get streaming to work with uh, HTTP 1. With HTTP 2, it's built into the protocol. Uh, and again, this allows you to do different things. And I'll get into that in one second. And uh, the, the last thing is HTTP 2 is binary, right? With HTTP, HTTP 1, it's all plain text. You can literally telnet into a HTTP server and then type in commands and hit enter and see what's coming over the wire. And it kind of, you can read it, right? It's human readable. Human readable is great, but the performance suffers because of that, right? With HTTP 2, it's all binary. So with those three things, you get a ton of performance, but the protocol is still the same as HTTP 1. It still gets and puts and posts. Now, what gRPC uses uh, is all of those things, right? With the asynchronous nature, you can just have one TCP connection open and do multiple RPC requests over that same pipe. With something like bidirectional streaming built in, now you don't have to do a request response. You can say, every time there's a new uh, user that hits my website, I want to uh, do X, right? And it can just stream those requests straight to the server without opening and closing a request every time. Uh, and then finally, with the binary format, it works perfectly with protocol buffers, right? You're not wasting any space trying to serialize this into a text format. So gRPC also has some really good support for mobile devices. Yep. Could you put this into context of the conversation like... Give me an idea of how my mobile device would communicate over gRPC uh, with a backend service. And, and also, sure. I mean, I'd love to hear about like how HTTP2 fits in to the discussion of mobile device support. Sure. So um, gRPC supports Objective-C, uh, Java, and C Sharp. So that's the three major um, mobile platforms, uh, Windows Phone, Android, and iOS, right? And so what this lets you do really is take advantage of those features. So like your microservices need fast performance, right? And they need low network usage. And your phone also needs the same thing, right? Your phone can just be an extension of your system. When they open your app, they want it to load quickly and they don't want it to take a lot of battery life and they don't want it to take a lot of their uh, very precious and expensive mobile data, right? So the same advantages that a microservice has are also applied to the phone. Um, so it's faster, it's le more battery efficient, and it takes less uh, network usage, which is great. So what about the container-to-container -container communication? How does that work with gRPC? Yeah, so it works the exact way that you would expect, right? Um, you put in the IP or the DNS name and the port, and you're good to go. Uh, and this is where I think something like Kubernetes and gRPC, they play really well together because you can just give it the name of your Kubernetes service and then that service will actually do the, the round robin load balancing, find the appropriate pod, uh, and then connect those two together, right? So now your microservices can talk to each other over gRPC. And gRPC has a lot of those error checking stuff uh, built in, right? It'll throw different errors that makes sense. I think another problem with using uh, JSON uh, REST is it throws HTTP 
1.0 errors, right? Like 403, 404, 500, 502, whatever. Now, these were built for the web. They weren't really built for microservices. With gRPC, you can actually do custom error codes and things like that that make a lot more sense. So now you can have your microservices actually respond correctly with the correct error code uh, and things like that. So now your services can talk to each other and understand what's going on. And as we're now getting into the discussion of the intersection of Kubernetes and gRPC, or just basically the services and the communication layer that they're using, could you contrast how Borg and Stubby are used with how Kubernetes and gRPC are used? Are there are there any significant differences between how the internal Google architecture has evolved to communicate versus how the open source translation of that uh, infrastructure has evolved? I can try. So I feel like someone like Brendan Burns would definitely know the answer better <laughs> than me because he's worked on both. Uh, and I'm just a user of Kubernetes. But from what I can tell, uh, and I might be totally wrong on this, is Borg um, bound ports very differently than Kubernetes. So Kubernetes has a, a virtual IP, uh, the idea of a virtual IP space, right? So every single pod gets its own IP address and its own range of ports. So it can do whatever it wants with whatever, right? Versus I think Borg, what it, what it would do, it, it would, um, again, I might be completely wrong on this, it would bind ports on the host itself, right? So now you have to, you fight for ports and things like that. And you had to do port mapping and all this complicated logic. And I think that's the one big difference between something like Borg and uh, Kubernetes. And of course, Borg has a lot more mature tooling and a lot more mature uh, configuration options, right? It has more mature schedulers, more mature um, uh, resource constraints and things like that, that Kubernetes is still, uh, people are still building that for Kubernetes, right? So I think that's the big difference between what we have internally and what we have externally. Uh, We think the Kubernetes method of the virtual IPs is a lot better. Uh, And then if you look at gRPC and Stubby, they're pretty much... Uh, the exact same thing. The one big one big difference is, of course, gRPC is able to leverage vanilla HTTP2. Uh, Stubby had to do a bunch of custom TCP or UDP stuff to get it to work, right? With HTTP2, it has all these features built straight into the stack, so you don't have to mess with uh, the lower level stuff, which is great. So talking about how Kubernetes or just the microservices architecture helps us get things rolling at a company more smoothly. You know, microservices get us things like continuous deployment, scalability, security. Explain how microservices make some of these application characteristics easier to attain and and why Kubernetes is useful for this. Sure. So I think the big reason why it makes these things easier is because it very clearly splits the development and the operations pieces uh, from each other, right? So with something like DevOps, you are responsible for the full stack, right? The developer doesn't just write code and then throw it over the wall and say, hey, operations, please run this, right? That's not what, I mean, that's a very bad pattern uh, to fall into because now you don't have ownership over your production environment. 
which leads to very bad habits for your development team, right? And then your operations folks be like, no, 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 we don't accept any new updates, right? And then you have this like fight between the two teams. And then DevOps is supposed to solve all that because one team owns the whole stack. Now, with something like Kubernetes, what it lets you do is have, again, one team that manages the cluster, right, and provides the Kubernetes service uh, itself to the developers. And now the developers can own the whole stack, but they don't ever, like, SSH into machines or manage the machines themselves. Instead, they manage the Kubernetes deployments, right? So let's say you need more capacity. Now you can just grow your cluster and for the developer, it just seems like they got more servers. They don't have to care about those servers or how they were set up. Uh, with something like Google Container Engine, uh, you just you know just add a server and then boom, you get a bigger cluster, right? And now the, on the developer side, what it lets you do is because you're not worried about the raw infrastructure anymore, you're treating this cluster as an entity, as a single entity that you interact with, with the Kubernetes API. You can do things like rolling updates and deployments and horizontal scaling, things like that, without having to own the whole stack at the same time owning your whole stack. That's a if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> no, it does. And and so as you're talking about the usability here and the how the teams different teams fit into this, like the DevOps uh, idea, I think it's relevant to talk about the SRE role at Google, which mm-hmm. that's the software reliability engineer, right? That's right. So there was a book that came out about this role pretty recently. Could you explain how, how, how does Kubernetes reflect the, or the, the, the usage of Kubernetes or perhaps the usage of Borg at Google? How do these things reflect the, the role of the SRE and the and how the SRE interacts with the the different engineers at Google. Sure. So SRE is a pretty unique uh, thing that Google has. Um, now, as far as I know, they they don't do everything. Um, and oh, actually, I'm 100 percent sure they don't manage all the systems. As, to get SRE quote unquote SRE support. Uh, it's actually very difficult. So SREs are extremely methodical in what they do and how they do it, right? Um, basically, the idea is they will support your application only if it's a certain level of good, right? Otherwise, you can just write junk code and then say, SREs, please maintain this. And they definitely don't want to do that. They want to support well-written, um, scalable, and performant code, right? And so what they can do is... And again, I don't know too much about SREs. Uh, actually, one of my coworkers is going undercover as an SRE for a year to learn more about exactly what they do, um, <laughs> which is going to be awesome. Uh, uh, yeah, Paul Newson, he he's going to take a very deep look at exactly what's going on behind the covers of being an SRE. So just so we can talk about it and let our customers know exactly what we do as Google, right? But again, they don't. They, they maintain and run those systems, those critical infrastructure systems um, for the rest of Google, right? And these are the things like Megastore or uh, things like that all Google services depend on. And that's really what SREs do is they make sure that these things are up and running. And unlike a traditional ops team where they ha- they're not software engineers, they don't know what's going on, uh, they just kind of 
run the systems as is, uh, SREs really allow experimentation to occur, right? So it's okay if there's downtime as long as it never, ever, ever happens again for the same reason, right? Uh, and this is very similar to like the Facebook culture and things like that as well, where you want to, if you break something, fix it fast and make sure it never breaks again for the same reason. Uh, and that just, so your systems become more and more and more robust as time goes on. I want to wrap up by talking about some some about the Google Compute platform in, in relation to the rest of this conversation that we've had. So this is the Google Cloud offering. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the uh, GCP, that is basically the top level uh, uh, expansion or explanation of the the thing that's the kind of the Google equivalent of Amazon Web Services. So many listeners in the audience have been working on systems with Amazon Web Services for for many years, um, and I've, you know, I've talked to people. The vast majority of people who are deploying to the cloud have been using AWS, but that's just because AWS has been focusing on this for a long time. As I understand, Google has a pricing model that is usually cheaper for most people, but even so, some people are resistant to change simply because they understand AWS quite well, and they understand the APIs, they understand they're comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. If I am building a new application today, and I want it to have Kubernetes and microservices, how does GCP, the Google Compute Platform, how does it give me an experience that is so good that I will build my app on Google rather than Amazon even if I have experience with Amazon. Yeah, for sure. So I think at Google Cloud Platform, you know, we kind of take a slightly different approach than uh, our competitors. Um, something like Kubernetes, again, is 100% open source, right? So you can run it on AWS, you can run it on Metal, you can run it on Azure, SoftLayer, whatever you want. Uh, and it's the same experience. Now, what we give you, right, is something like Google Container Engine, where on something like AWS, you have to manage those machines yourself, right? You have to spin up EC2 instances, install Kubernetes, do things like that. Whereas in Container Engine, we manage that for you. So we just give you a cluster and you start going, right? Um, and a lot of people like this because if for whatever reason, Google drops the ball, right? We stop being competitive with uh, everyone else. Well, you can just migrate off to someone else and there's no lock-in, which is really awesome. Uh, another thing is... It's really hard to explain over a podcast, but our, the performance that we give you is pretty mind-blowing, right? Uh, you can spin up something like a 1,000 Linux VMs in under five minutes. I'm not sure if you can do that on any other cloud provider. You can do things like hot-grow persistent disks, uh, known in the AWS world as an EBS volume. You can hot-grow them, right? So if you have a, a 500 gigabyte disk attached to your VM, you're running out of space, you don't have to shut it down and grow the disk and do a snapshot. You just say, like, now it's a 1,000 gigabyte disk, resize the file system, done, right? And you can do that live in production. You can do things like custom VMs where uh, you can specify exactly how much memory and RAM you want so you're not over or under uh, utilizing your uh, machines. There's a lot of these kind of nifty features that we offer that not many other cloud providers can touch. And that's really because we're building it on the same systems that the rest of Google uses, right? So our machine learning, data store, things like that, they're built to support Google-scale infrastructure, right? So it can definitely support all of our customers as well. 
um, because we feel that everyone should have the best of everything, right? So why should only Google have these things? Let's let let's open it up to the world. And so it's a pretty radical shift in how Google thinks, right? In the past, they would release a white paper and that's it. And then the community would go and implement it, right? So Hadoop is the, the canonical example of this. Google released MapReduce white paper and the Hadoop ecosystem blew up from it, right? But now we're seeing things like Cloud Dataflow, TensorFlow, uh, things like that, where Google itself is open sourcing um, the application and then letting you run it on its cloud or anywhere else if you choose, right? But we really believe that our cloud uh, will give you the best experience to run open source software like the stuff we're putting out. So are you saying that the era of of Google releasing these papers, uh, it, like Google releasing their paper only when Google has something internally that is now better than the paper or or you know this this kind of epoch of uh you know google 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 writes a paper on a service and then uh the open source community gets it implemented and usable uh you know and by that time by the time the open source community actually gets it usable google's got something new that they're using internally are you saying that that epoch uh, uh stands to end with gcp because google will just gradually move towards a situation that is more and more parallel uh, in terms of you know the what the the public has access to and what Google has access to, I mean as an individual, I certainly hope so. I think uh, a lot of people have caught up to Google uh, in terms of technology, right? Like hmm. in the past, no one else had these problems, and now everyone seems to have these problems, right? So it didn't make sense to release something like MapReduce uh, because who else would need it? And then all of a sudden, everyone needs it, right? And if you look at something like HBase, so HBase is the open source version of Google's Bigtable. Now, our internally, our Bigtable is still a lot more performant than HBase, but the APIs were slightly different. And so when we released Cloud Bigtable, we actually had to re-architect a few things to allow people to use the open source HBase API uh, with our internal Bigtable, which if you look at a blog post, if you run Big t- uh, sorry HBase on uh, Google Compute Engine versus running uh, Bigtable, you get so much more performance using our managed Bigtable service versus trying to manage everything yourself. Uh, and this is our competitive advantage, right? Uh, TensorFlow, same thing. If you run it in our cloud ML offering, you get that that our huge super clusters without having to manage that infrastructure, right? Uh, so again. We're seeing our competitive advantage not in the implementation anymore. It's our infrastructure that really gives us that edge, right? So if you want to run TensorFlow on your GPU at home, go for it, and it'll work really (laughs) well. And then when you want to run it in production, you simply run it on our cloud, right? And if you're not happy with our cloud, you can move off. And I think that's we're trying to be really fair in that sense um, with... Look, the the future now is no longer white paper and then see what the heck the community does. Let's just think open source from day one and do it that way. And I think TensorFlow, Dataflow, um, Kubernetes, gRPC, all these things really point in that direction where we want to be part of a community and not just Google uh, from our high tower throwing down white papers, right? That's the old Google, I think, I hope, personally. Um, and the new Google, I think, is much more of a community-based 
thing. And cloud platform is definitely uh, the biggest driver of that. Well, and by by moving the competitive moat from the software layer to the hardware layer, if the if the competitive moat is the actual infrastructure, then the the economics become a little more transparent because Google gets massive economies of scale from having the infrastructure. But with software, there's not really an economies of scale thing. So like if I tell you about, if I give you all the source code to my proprietary software, Mm -hmm. you could just run my proprietary software and I don't get anything out of it. But with Google, you know, Google can say, okay, here's what we're doing with our infrastructure. And uh, we're the only ones who can get the economies of scale because we're the only ones who are buying these massive amounts of infrastructure. I mean, obviously AWS or Azure might be also, but uh, we are able to get these economics, and then we also have this software running on it, and we've got tons of experience. So it makes—I I don't know—it's it's, a—it's kind of a bright future because it's—it's it's so much more transparent and win-win in terms of the consumer. Uh, provider relationship. Yeah, I, I do want to be clear that like there is a lot of proprietary software still going on. So when I, for example, a good example is Dataflow, right? So uh, Apache Beam is the open source version. And so when you write Apache Beam code, you can run it with a Spark backend, right? On your open source Hadoop clusters, you can just run Spark and it'll process uh, Apache Beam code. Or you can run it on Cloud Dataflow, right? Uh, the same code can run on both. Now Dataflow, our internal runner, right? Our internal implementation of the Apache Beam runtime has a lot of secret sauce uh, that we're not going to open anytime soon. Instead, <laughs> right, uh, you can run it on-prem with something like Apache Spark. So this allows you to do something... A lot, so you're not locked in. I think the biggest thing here is we don't want to lock you into us for any reason, right? We want to compete on our performance and our price. We don't want to compete on hey, you use our stuff, haha, you can never leave. And I think that's the big the big takeaway. Hmm. Okay. So like the APIs that I'm interfacing with, there are there are plenty of uh more there there'll always be an API uh, you know, it's because like I, when I hear about DynamoDB for for AWS, for example, I hear mm-hmm. that I, I have no experience with DynamoDB other than I have heard that the APIs to it are Proprietary. So, if you use Dynamo DB APIs with your application, you're locked into Dynamo. Exactly. But, where it, but it's okay. So, with with Google, that sort of uh, pent up developer resentment will not exist because the APIs are just going to be like it's SQL or something that's like much friendlier. Exactly. Right. So, like that, we feel like that is not a good reason to pick a cloud. Right. I pick this cloud because I have to. That sounds yeah. like a terrible uh, value prop for normal people. It's, I picked this cloud because it's the best, and that's what we want to compete on. <laughs> so, uh, final question. I know we're up against time, but uh, I mean, how do you see these different cloud service providers evolving? Do you see any sort of like, uh, do you see more cloud service providers or fewer ones? Do you see specialization? How do you see like Azure and Google and, and Amazon and DigitalOcean, all these different things? How do you see them evolving in the future? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I have a ton of friends who work for Azure, a ton of friends who work for AWS. Uh, I think the future is bright for public cloud in general. Uh, I was having this conversation um, a few weeks ago at NGConf, actually. We were talking about pub- public cloud versus on-prem versus private cloud and things like that. And I said, 
you know, there's only going to be a few companies that have the economies of scale and the expertise required to do cloud well, right? Um, it's going to make no, so what's going to happen is a startup is going to start in the same industry as an incumbent, you start using public cloud and just have such higher margins on whatever they do that they just start killing it, right? And then what you what do you do? How do you compete with that? You have to go public cloud. How long will this thing take? I have no idea. Am I biased? Of course, right? I work for a public cloud company. So <laughs> um, that's what I believe. I believe public cloud is really the future. Um, and so it, that pie is just growing astronomically. So there's a lot of pie to eat. And I think there's going to be a few players. Who's going to survive? Who's going to die out? I don't know. I really think Google's going to be in there for the long term. But again, I am super biased. But hey, I wish I could tell you about all the stuff we were doing internally. It would be amazing. I would also get fired. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just stay tuned. I think the next 10 years are going to be freaking amazing. All right. Well, that's a great place to close off. Sandeep, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff, so much. 